Liquidated damages, where parties to a contract agree in advance that if a breach of contract occurs, the party that committed the breach will pay a fixed sum of money. That sum is considered liquidated damages. Liquidated damages provisions are common in many types of contracts. In construction contracts, if a contractor delivers the project late, the contractor may pay a per diem amount for each day late. In real estate sales, if a buyer fails to buy the property, he may forfeit the deposit. In the lease context, if a tenant breaches their obligation to pay rent, they may be responsible for some portion of the rent remaining in the lease term. If the parties to an agreement clearly indicate an intention to agree on a damages amount in advance, most courts will enforce these agreements as liquidated damages. Liquidated damages promote certainty in the result. The party will know its precise risk exposure for a breach of contract. They promote efficiency. Parties won't need complex, drawn-out litigation over the amount of damages. And they promote freedom of contract, a bedrock principle underpinning Anglo-American law and a cornerstone of free market ideals. But the freedom of contract has its limits. Liquidated damages will only be enforced if the damages at issue are difficult to calculate and the liquidated amount represents a reasonable forecast of the expected damages. If a court finds the liquidated damages to be a penalty, it will not be enforced. On April 15, 2016, the Massachusetts Constable Service entered into a five-year office lease with a major commercial real estate company in the Boston area. The Constable Service, a collective of 20 or so legal process servers, came to some notoriety as the Cowboy Constables due to their dramatic and sometimes provocative methods for serving legal papers. Daryl Hines, the owner of the company, personally guaranteed the lease. Shortly after the lease began, the Cowboy Constables lost a major contract and failed to pay their rent. The landlord terminated the lease and sought liquidated damages under what's known as an acceleration provision, which made the entire remaining rent for the full five-year lease term immediately due. A Superior Court judge sided with the landlord and upheld the liquidated damages provision. Hines appealed. Would freedom of contract prevail, or would the cowboy constables rein in this commonly used form of liquidated damages? This is Hines versus Cummings Properties. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff Goodman. Today we're discussing a case that has the attention of the entire commercial real estate community. To help us understand it, we're talking with Joe Simons, a Boston trial lawyer who represented Daryl Hines in this case. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here. 
So, Joe, you won your appeal. The appeals court held that a lease acceleration clause like the one in your client's lease that essentially allows a landlord to re-rent the property and make money off of it, but not pay any of that money back to the defaulting tenant represents a windfall for the landlord and constitutes an unenforceable penalty. Basically, in the lease context, the court is saying, you know, there are contractual methods to make liquidated damages more equitable, more fair, and to more accurately account for the actual damages suffered by the landlord. And if you, as the landlord, don't account for that in some fashion, it's going to be considered an unenforceable penalty. And so I think that conclusion makes some sense on a number of levels, one being the practical level. You know, not all leases are created equal. Uh, the hot lab space in Kendall Square is going to be easier to re-rent than, you know, an office space outside of 495. And if you're, as a court, going to treat the, those two spaces equally, you could potentially run afoul of the liquidated damages areas of the law. So that being said, the landlord in this case has appealed the appeals court's decision to the Supreme Judicial Court under a procedure known as further appellate review or FAR. And the SJC has been sitting on this FAR application for, I guess, about two months. And looking at the docket today, I noticed that they've deferred it yet again another month. So the first question for you, Joe, is, is the SJC going to take this case? And if so, is there any fear that a conservative court like this is going to err on the side of freedom of contract and just say, hey, if the parties agreed to it, let the superior court judgment in favor of the landlord stand? Well, as you can imagine, this case having gotten a lot of attention, I've talked to a number of different attorneys wondering that and trying to gauge my sense of whether this is going to be taken up by the Supreme Judicial Court. And frankly, nobody knows for sure. But I will say, based on my experience with the Supreme Judicial Court and further appellate review applications, usually they deny them. They usually just, you know, decide not to take them up. The fact that we just got this notice, I think it was yesterday or today even, and they said that they're deferring it gives me some sense that they, they may be more likely to take it up. And especially where this is a case that affects, I can only imagine, thousands and thousands of leases throughout the Commonwealth, not only potentially leases that are already in effect and could be litigated at some point, but also future leases. I mean, you've got attorneys who are surely advising big commercial landlords and potentially lessees about what provisions should go in the contracts and how to forecast the damages. This really has, I think, shaken up the way that lawyers are advising their clients, at least for the time being, unless the SJC takes it up and finds another outcome for the case. Yeah, there's no doubt. I want to pick it up there because, as you pointed out, this is a case with pretty significant ramifications on you know Boston real estate players. And as someone who personally devotes a considerable amount of time to you know commercial lease disputes, this case caught my attention the day it came out. But what's interesting is that my clients all know about it already too. You know, this is something that's made the rounds in the commercial real estate community 
people understand it. They understand and they take very seriously these acceleration provisions. And especially in a market like we've had the past couple of years, where office space is harder to fill, certain retail space is harder to fill. You know, landlords are taking these acceleration obligations seriously and it's creating a lot of disputes. So if you have a provision that's written like the landlord's provision in this case, that could create a real problem for you if your tenant decides to walk out the door. And so this is a case that is really at the center of the commercial leasing world, at least. And I know from our discussions, commercial leasing isn't necessarily your bailiwick. You know, I know a big part of your practice is focused on criminal trial work. So can you tell the listeners how you got kind of involved in this case? Yeah, you know, it's funny that I somehow ended up with this case that now had such a major impact on commercial leasing when I don't think I've had another case that ever had to do with commercial leasing. So my client, Daryl Hines, is a guy that I've worked with before. So actually going back to your earlier introduction about the constable's office, Daryl is a constable, he's an entrepreneur, and he's a guy that's willing to, you know, take risks, but calculated risks that back in 2017 landed him in hot water. So I initially represented him on a criminal matter related to the constable work that he did. There was a case that was in the news where he was charged with about 20 different offenses, some gun-related charges, some impersonation of a police officer offenses. And really, the, just like the case here, the case there, the facts weren't contested. He had gotten certain Glock firearms that are law enforcement only. He had given them to members of his constable's office. And normally, civilians can't have those guns, can't give out those guns. There's no authority in which to do so. He had uniforms for himself and for his constables, and he actually created a thriving constable business. In addition to serving papers, as most people think of constable work to be confined to, they also made arrests in certain cases, both criminal and civil. Very few constables would take that on. But Daryl, being a man of intellect and somebody who scoured the law before he took on the endeavor of becoming a constable, he found out that there were still laws on the books that would allow for constables to make arrests in criminal or civil cases. He found out that constables might be considered law enforcement according to his interpretation of various statutes that go back hundreds of years. So the actions that he took in his understanding of the law were legal. Obviously, the um, prosecution didn't feel that way. So I had gotten involved in his criminal case. We took the case all the way to trial, and some of the charges got dismissed prior to trial. I think 12 of them remained, and they went to a jury, and the jury acquitted him of all of the remaining charges. So he was vindicated in that case. And, you know, throughout that process, he and I became friends. And, you know, whenever he has potential clients, he thinks of me. And then when he himself came involved in this contract dispute, at first he got a different attorney when the constable's office was taken to court in the Woburn District Court. But when the landlord took him to Superior Court and he got served with a summons and he was being sued personally, he came back to me, asked me if I'd take it on. And frankly, my first response was, no, this is not within my wheelhouse. I don't know what I'm doing. You'd be better off with somebody probably like you, Bob, somebody that really is an expert in this area. 
But, you know, Daryl's a, like I said, he's become a friend. He's a charming guy. He's, you know, he kind of explained the situation and it really felt unfair. And obviously I didn't know anything about liquidated damages, but the way that he described and the way the complaint read was exactly how it came to fruition is that this landlord was looking to get a full five years worth of damages, even though Daryl had tried to get out of the lease very early on. In fact, he tried to get out of the lease before he even took possession. I don't know if the facts aren't completely fleshed out in the appeal, but he signed a lease. Then the lease was supposed to take effect in a few months. And even before he took possession, he tried to get out. The landlord's position was too bad. You owe us the full amount either way. And the rest is kind of history. Well, for somebody that doesn't know much about liquidated damages, you've certainly acquitted yourself well in in this case, Joe. And you know, what are one of the things that struck me about your last response was how cautious and knowledgeable Daryl is and has been about the law. And one of the things that struck me in some of your briefing papers is there was a focus on sophistication. And for the listeners, generally, as I had said in my intro, generally liquidated damages provisions between sophisticated actors are going to be upheld. You know, freedom of contract principles that I was sort of talking about. And I know you went through great lengths to portray this situation as kind of you know, the landlord being sort of the sophisticated Goliath, we'll call him, versus the unsophisticated David and Daryl Hines. How do you think, well, I guess this is a two-part question. Number one, why did you decide to make that such a focal point of your presentation? And number two, how, if at all, do you think that portrayal impacted the appeals court's ultimate decision in this case? That's a good question. And I do think, despite what I said about Daryl being an intellect and really scouring the law, he's not a lawyer. He's got no legal training. And frankly, even as a primarily criminal defense attorney, when I read a contract or a, a you know a commercial lease, it's not as clear to me as it probably is to you. So I think he honestly didn't understand the implications of the lease in a specifically the liquidated damages portion when he signed as a personal guarantor to the lease. Um, I really think that's true. I mean, he read it. I think he generally understood that he owed a certain amount of rent, that he had a five-year lease, but I don't believe he had any real understanding of what the impact would be on a breach of the lease or the lease being terminated early. So we did go to great lengths. We were completely honest in his in our briefings and in his testimony about his experience. And that is that he was a tax preparer. He became a constable, which really doesn't require much other than either being appointed by the mayor of a town or being elected by the local community that you're in. So there's no real training for that. He was able to establish a contract between the constable's office and the Department of Revenue, which sounds impressive. And it is, you know, it was quite a thing. But again, it, this was all sort of self-taught by himself reading. I don't, as far as I recall, he didn't get any legal opinions about either, you know, that type of contract work or even with regard to the lease that he signed. So I still maintain that those arguments were valid. And I think that 
despite his taking great lengths to read and try to understand the law and about the nature of the contract, I still think he was not a sophisticated party. So I think those were honest arguments. And in terms of your second part of the question of whether or not that played a role in the appeals court and their ultimate decision, it may have. I mean, I think that it, I think it's a perfect case for this type of argument. It'd be a, a different story if he were a bigger company with a legal department going up against a bigger landlord. So I do think it fits that sort of David and Goliath narrative where you got this, you know, this guy who's now, you know, he's just a regular guy. He's, a, he's not a rich guy. He's a father. He's a husband, you know, doesn't really have a ton of a big nest egg to try to, you know, pay off something that, you know, it's a big amount of money for a typical person on their own. So I do think it could have, I mean, the humanization, just the reasonableness or lack thereof might've had an impact. And I'll tell you, when I was at the oral argument, I remember one of the justices posed a question to the other attorney and said, you know, what if this was a 20-year lease, for example? If this was 20-year lease, would you still maintain that this is a, a lawful and a reasonable liquidated damages clause? And I think their position was and probably had to be that, yes, it is if both sides go into it. And given the then uh, you know, prevailing case law, I think that that's what they said. But it just seemed that the justices that heard the case, probably, yeah, to answer your question, it probably had some impact on it. Now, so often in litigation, what I've noticed is that the intensity of the case and even the length of the case, costs associated with the case, can be driven by you know, issues that are sort of ancillary to the merits, the personalities of the people involved, what have you. And here, you know, it's sort of striking. You have the cowboy constables on one side, and then on the other side, of course, you've got this big sophisticated landlord with its own legal department, and they've really been kind of aggressive at litigating these liquidated damages provisions throughout the Commonwealth for at least 15 or 20 years and really shaping the law on liquidated damages in this area for the past couple of decades. And so I guess my question to you is whether or not the personalities played any role in the length and intensity of this dispute, or if there was any other reason or obstacle as to why something like this wasn't resolved through some kind of a settlement. I think that uh, Daryl felt very strongly about the wrongfulness of the landlord's position. I don't know that there was any real offer from the landlord, and maybe they were waiting for us to make a settlement offer. Daryl really wasn't willing to do that. And I don't know, I think having been through that earlier fight back in 2017, he had the stomach to you know, take this to trial. Didn't feel like he had a whole lot to lose. I mean, less to lose in this case than we had in the other case where you know, the penalties were a lot higher on him. So I don't know. I think the combination of he and I both being willing to, you know, take this all the way to the trial and feeling like it was a meaningful and um, a just fight, you know, I think that was probably the biggest thing. And frankly, as a criminal lawyer, I mean, I'm doing a lot of trials, so I can't say what it's like to be a civil litigator typically, but you know, I might be on trial every couple of months or every month. I you know, I might have a jury trial. So for me to go to trial, it's like nothing. You know, it's part of my regular day. So there's no bluffing. There's no like, if we go to trial, who cares? We go to trial and we'll see where it shakes out. It's not this. I mean, I shouldn't say that it, who cares because it's, you know, clients are affected, but I just mean I'm willing to do it. Client's okay with it. I'm okay with it. Let's see where it shakes out. So 
That being said, I think the lawyer on the other side, you know, was professional to deal with. I don't think there was any real, you know, anything that caused extra litigation other than getting to the point of trial. But for example, we didn't even conduct depositions. They didn't depose Daryl. We didn't depose anyone on that side. So in that sense, it was a pretty streamlined case. We did conduct some interrogatory and document production, but largely the facts weren't in dispute anyway. So there wasn't a real, at least from our opinion, there wasn't a real reason to do depositions. And apparently the other side felt the same way. Even though it went pretty far because it went to trial and appeal, I think it was done in a way that, you know, it was concise too. Now, one unusual thing I noticed on appeal is that, and I can't recall if it was before or after the oral argument, but there was a request for supplemental briefing, which I don't think I've come across that. It's certainly not in my own personal practice. Can you provide the listeners with kind of the context of that request and how, if at all, that supplemental briefing may have impacted the decision? Yeah. So there was a request after the oral argument for the parties to file a supplement argument about, you know, I can't, to be honest, I can't remember exactly the specific question, but I think it had to do with whether or not there was liquidated damages or something similar, non-commercial leases. I might be getting this wrong. Bob, you probably have a, maybe you've read it more recently than I have, but I can tell you, I, I have done some appeals and I have done some civil and probably more criminal appeals, but under neither avenue have I seen the appeals court ask for supplemental briefing in my own practice. So I think if they obviously do it, but it seems pretty rare and whether or not that had an impact, I don't know because it's not something that sticks out in my mind and whatever they asked for, I produced, the other side produced, but I don't think that really went to the meat of the overall decision anyway. Well, listen, Joe, thank you for joining us today. Congratulations on the victory at the appeals court and wish you the best of luck with the SJC. All right. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate you having me on. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you were involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at burnkofflegal.com. That's R. Stetson at B-E-R-N-K-O-P-F legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments, on Twitter at Legal underscore Judgments, and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in Judgments.